Hello, everybody. Welcome to another thrilling episode of JavaScript Jabber. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio, as you can see on the screen if you're watching, and the voice for being a mime, but I'm still your host. Today on my panel with on our panel, excuse me, not my panel, our panel, we have Dan Shapir. How are you doing, Dan? Hi, doing great from Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv, how's it? It's nice and toasty warm, or are you still feeling winter over there? Uh, it's kind of, it's a bit chilly. You know, it, it's Tel Aviv cold. <laughs> right, relative. It's like, you know, Tucson or Phoenix cold here. Uh, also, we have AJ O'Neill. How you doing, AJ? Yo, 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 coming at you live from type drafting. Type drafting, is that feeling drafty? Or is that something different? It's kind of like when you're in a car and you're behind someone and you just you just catch their their air to make your resistance right. less. It's drafting. Yes. Very cool. All righty. And our special guest is Ryan Carniato. Ryan, why don't you tell us about yourself, who you are, why you're famous, so on and so forth, and then we'll get into why you're actually here. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, my name's Ryan. I... I'm coming here today from San Jose, California. I am author of JavaScript framework uh, SolidJS. I work at Netlify on open source and uh, spend a lot of time on the topics of reactivity and JavaScript frameworks because they're both passions of mine. Awesome. So we will let Dan explain why Ryan is here today because it's <laughs> his fault. I mean, it was his choice to have Ryan come. So uh, take it away, Dan. Well, you know, having Ryan on our show is, you know, always such a great pleasure. And, you know, we've, we've had him once before. I hope to have him again pretty soon for a different topic. But the, the one that I really wanted Ryan to come on to cover today is the topic of uh, JavaScript frameworks or like the future of JavaScript frameworks. Where are we heading in 2023 and the years ahead? Uh, it's funny because um, I I gave a couple of talks about JavaScript frameworks. I was supposed to give another talk about JavaScript frameworks. And then I noticed that Ryan posted this short and very succinct video about JavaScript frameworks. I think it's like, what, five and a half hours long, Ryan? It's really, really like a snippet of a video. And, and, uh, and in that video, he talks about uh, uh, JavaScript frameworks, and you know, I listened to it. Though I must admit, it's something like uh, 1.25 because you know, five hours is a bit much. Um, and there was so much great content there that uh, afterwards, I actually, you know, reached out to Ryan and asked him to talk about some of the points and like compare our notes, as it were, but where we're thinking that frameworks are heading. And you know, based on all that, I thought it it would be a really good idea for him to come on our show and talk about this topic uh, because I, I think it's really interesting for so many uh, JavaScript developers because after years of, of like uh, really kind of having only React and kind of view as the dominant frameworks, maybe, you know, Angular because it's really difficult to get rid of, you know, existing code bases, but mostly React and Vue as frameworks in, in which developers were creating new web applications, all of a sudden, it seems that web frameworks are coming out of the woodwork, uh, that we're really inundated in, in frameworks. And it's not just for uh, the bleeding edge. A lot of people are picking these 
new frameworks as the ones that they use to build actual projects in production. Uh, I know different companies that are using Svelte or, or Solid or now Quick has come along. So it's really an interesting time again, I think, in, in framework land. And again, this is what I wanted Ryan to come over and speak about. So take it away. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Dan. It is actually interesting because the thing is, this kind of innovation progress forward has been going on like through the whole time period, right? It's just, uh, I think we go through these cycles where, um, you know, we get to a point where we're like, okay, that's enough change. That's enough, you know, volatility. Let's mature this and see where it goes. And largely, the last time we had that wave uh, was in the early 2010s, and then React kind of came in. And even initial React wasn't received particularly well, but at a certain point, it was kind of clear that it was the the, the winner, so to speak, and everything kind of consolidated around that. Um, but that didn't mean that other approaches and didn't continue to progress. And honestly, our expectations of what we wanted out of a JavaScript framework have been adjusting too, even within React, right? We, we've watched it morph and it change. And um, it's always kind of interesting to me that when uh, the big player actually acknowledges that change is on the horizon, it actually has this rippling effect because it, like someone can come up with something really brilliant years early, like before anyone care about it and get relatively unnoticed. But then when like the whole larger sentiment starts shifting, then it's like, oh, maybe these things do have value. And I think that's largely what we've been seeing here. I think we've kind of hit some of the walls around our current thinking around, you know, things like single page apps. And we're kind of like, the last couple of years have been really exploring and kind of thinking about alternatives. Of course, these things take time. And it wasn't really until last year that we started saying, oh, some of these things are kind of coming to fruition. And I expect that trend to kind of continue into 2023, uh, just like as a high level of where my perspective is. But we can we can talk about some specific topics. This is a pretty wide um, range of topics here because there's, there's innovation happening in the ecosystem in similar categories, I would like to say, but really all over the place. Like everyone's taking their hand at trying to solve certain types of problems. Um, everything from hydration, which I believe I, I caught a recent episode that was all about hydration, um, to looking at like state management and like how we manage, uh, you know, updates in our code, like make it more intuitive. You know, you'll, you'll hear things like reactivity um, and even the concept of like the language. Like there's a lot of, how should I put it, like, re-examination of the fundamental pieces going on because which is, m makes sense you know with kind of the shift happening right now uh but yeah very high level at the, at this point i think your last point is really really interesting if you hadn't men mentioned it i might have brought it all up myself because it's really um it's a really big shift that we're seeing from frameworks being effectively libraries on top of react eh, not react on top of javascript like react to being uh much more compilers that compile kind of different languages into javascript so i know that solid uses a compiler even though to a relative limited extent um 
Svelte does it to a much more significant extent. We can talk about others. But I have a question for you. Uh, you brought this up as a period of transition and transformation after a certain period of, I wouldn't call it stagnation, but I would call it like leveling out, like embracing all the changes that came before. And I'm thinking that, you know, maybe this was kind of pushed forward by what happened with React, that in a sense, React kind of announced that uh, we've reached a certain barrier, certain limitations that we need to figure ways to uh, break through these uh, hindrances. But at the same time, React, and they announced a lot of intentions, but at the same time, they kind of, didn't quite follow through with it for a relatively lengthy period of time, like essentially three years, more or less, like the time between React 17 and whenever 18 officially finally comes out. Yeah. So I'm wondering whether it's this kind of a thing where everybody's on the one hand primed prim to the um, understanding that change needs to occur, while simultaneously not getting it necessarily from the um, you know leading framework, certainly from the leading framework. So, what do you think about that? Yeah, React's a great place to start here because the thing is, when you're the biggest player, like the biggest game in town, so to speak, you can kind of you have a couple options. You can just kind of sit on your laurels and just be like, "Look, people like what we do." You know, we do it well, and we'll continue doing that. But there's always going to be a point that, you know, innovation and limitations catch up with you. You know, you have such a large user base, people trying all different use cases. And while the, you know, general consensus might stay positive for a very long period of time, at a certain point, if it tips, like if someone's like, oh, React just can't do this or whatever things might actually go really like go south really quickly. And I think React team understood, you know, the trade-offs and the considerations of designing React. And they knew actually probably as soon as anyone else that certain type of change was inevitable. Uh, A lot of the, you know, React 18 conversation suspense, concurrent rendering, time slicing, all that, um, to my understanding, started much earlier, um, sometime 2016, in fact, the, the, the Facebook had just kind of come off like, look, we, we've got a really good solution for data fetching with Relay. Like they had, they had kind of got a system which really fit into the React single page app model and it worked well. They could do granular data fetching and validation. They, they could handle a lot of complicated apps and performance problems in a fairly systematic way. Of course, extending that outside of Facebook um, was challenging um, because it was complicated. They had compilers. They had pieces that would always kind of get in the way. So the, like, how do you bring that to everyone? So my understanding is that around that time period, they started going, hey, what comes after GraphQL, right? What, wh- what can we do to look at the fundamental nature of how we handle data fetching? At the same time, every like people paying attention would have noticed that the size of JavaScript on the browser was getting larger, like more interactivity, more demanding people changing to single page apps where classically they might've not been. So we've got this like increased cost in our websites and apps. And and sure, 
technology, you know, like devices are getting faster, networks are getting faster. But there's there's still a big range there in terms of, uh, you know, what's out there versus, you know, what I have sitting here um, in Silicon Valley that I'm connecting to the stream with. And I think that understanding and wider sense of use cases ultimately, you know, gives you that choice. Do you kind of ignore it for a while or do you embrace it and try and, you know, move on to, and improve on things? And I think React Core team very much saw very early like, hey, this is probably going to be a problem in the future. This is the question we're going to need to answer. So they started on this journey um, a very long time ago without necessarily even having all the answers, just going, okay, this is directionally where we need to go. What does that look like? How to experiment it? And it's tricky when you have a large user base um, and you and you need to kind of figure figure that out. So they've moved. Um, if I can interrupt you for one second, yeah. you did mention the cost of single page applications and devices and whatnot. Uh, it's not yet come out at the time of this record of uh, this recording, but it should be out obviously by the time this show actually airs. Uh, last week, we actually interviewed um, Alex Russell, currently at uh, Microsoft, previously at uh, Google, who's for years been really critical of, of most JavaScript frameworks, precisely because of uh, the, the impact and implications in terms of user experience and the devices many users actually have. Because saying that devices are actually getting faster is not wholly accurate. Uh, you know, we've had a transition period going from mostly desktops to mostly mobile. Now we are all mobile, but we had this kind of transition period. And during that transition period, which kind of coincided with the initial release of React, we actually went backwards in terms of performance quite significantly. Um, even the, the best of breed mobile devices uh, weren't up to, to the same speed and performance and capability level as, as you know, mediocre desktops. And these days, even though like the latest and greatest iPhone is, is amazing, what Alex actually quite uh, forcefully pointed out to us is that you've got a huge base of users that are, you know, using fairly low-end Android devices and their experience with the single-page applications using almost any framework is actually quite abysmal in many yeah. cases. And the thing is, it's it's kind of architectural. How should I put it? Like people give um, React some flack sometimes because it's large. And it, it, it is, don't get me wrong. And there's, you know, other overheads, you know, legacy support probably back to, I don't know, is it IE8? Like, for the DOM libraries, it's just that the truth of the matter is any any lar- like business that's kind of gone and done this thing. And I, if you talk to Alex, I'm sure he covered it in great detail. They, they have seen that. There's a reason that like Amazon.com shopping does not use a single page app or like a client side JavaScript framework like that. Um, even ones that had maybe bought in initially changed their strategy. You know, once they realized the scaling thing, this doesn't always get talked about as much, right? Like. Um, I actually caught a little bit of flack uh, uh, watching the, the React uh, document uh, documentary that came out, which is, it is very interesting documentary. People should check it out because just the, React was a pretty radical, unique idea in terms of how to approach things because it, it offered this sort of kind of 
simplicity in how we view our state model that was kind of unprecedented. But on the other hand, you know, there was there's a section where they're talking about how like Netflix um, sw- switched over to React pretty early on. One of the other big companies is going to move. But I remember a couple of years later, Netflix was like, look, um, we actually had them remove the React from our client because it like the hydration cost and stuff was too expensive. And um, like, again, this isn't really React's fault. I benchmark this stuff all the time and I benchmark different single page apps. And it's, it, it is largely architectural. We're kind of, we have this kind of, I, I call it almost like a, was it almost like like a destiny kind of thing like like what will could happen will happen thing when you build with single page app mentality the idea is that everything will end up in the browser um you know like eventually just the way you write the code and the real question you have to ask yourself like this is fine you can like you if you can mitigate it suppose but that's what you have to ask you're like am i going to spend my time mitigating how i'm going to load it and like figure out how to like slice that up or am I going to look at different models where, you know, maybe all that JavaScript is not necessary? And that's... Yeah. Uh, what I wanted to add to that is that people kind of blamed for a while the size of React. And so, you know, for example, people were uh, promoting Preact because Jason did an amazing job of shrinking the code while making it faster and leaving like the 90% of the functionality that you actually care about. But it turns out that the size problem usually wasn't React itself. It was the fact that, like you said, with a single page application, I need to download everything. So from my perspective, the lethal combination is that download everything architecture that's enforced by single page application coupled with NPM. Because when you were just developing for for Node on the back end, well, you know, I could pull the world. Why do I care? It's running on my server. Whereas if you know, if I and and for example, at in the early days at Wix, we actually found out that we were lo- uh, downloading three different versions of MomentJS uh, because you know how different parts of the application were bound to different versions, and MomentJS is like huge, just the single instance downloading it three times. That was incredibly bad, and you could easily get into these scenarios. In fact, you still get into these scenarios today. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it is, it is, it is tricky. And this is, this all lends to part of the complexity question when people talk about like optimizing and like how hard it is as we layer these tool tools on, which is another great topic, but just kind of hopefully pulling back to your original question here, React saw the, like they knew, that that these things were like they would have to address these problems eventually. It might have started with the fact that you know an app like a single page app was designed for that apps like literally those kind of experiences. And now we want to use these tools to build websites and all other sorts of you know experiences. That might be you know part of that broadening. But I think it goes even beyond that. They just knew eventually that you know something would have to shift like most mitigation over time just showed that line just kept on going up and up and up, you know, in terms of amount of JavaScript and JavaScript expense. And the, I guess the, it is an interesting question because I feel that actually React is doing a fairly, it's taken a while, but they are doing a decent job of addressing that with some of their solutions, things that they're looking at like server components, um, which we can talk about as well today. But it, it is that perception on size is tricky for you know people to verify right like 
this is a complex topic in itself because it's a lot of new knowledge areas, like places where people haven't tried these new architectures, don't understand the trade-offs yet. And it, it, I think one of the challenges we have right now is in the meanwhile, while you know, React's kind of been doing its thing, a lot of other solutions have found, you know, you mentioned Preact, smaller, faster approaches. Um, you know, SolidJS, Svelte are also in that kind of same category of, of delivering on the single page app experience. And that change, like from a hello world, hacker news, throw up my blog site perspective, is a much more obvious thing that people see when looking at these solutions. They're like, look, I created my blog site in Next, and it was, I don't know, 160 kilobytes of JavaScript. And then I went and created it in Svelte Kit, and it's 35 kilobytes of JavaScript, you know, and you you can very easily confirm that. And it's kind of the same with like, even some sort of like benchmarks for performance, you know, it's some, someone's going to test updating text in a text node, they're not going to test some very complicated or advanced application, they're going to just like spam something a, a billion times, right. And these kind of simple tests or simple um, scenarios don't quite make it easy to appreciate um you know the value of of some solutions like um uh, if a, there's there's always going to be a base amount of javascript that you're going to be sending to your page if you want that client interactivity um i i, I often call it like the myth of zero kilobytes of javascript it's not it's not a real thing you can, you can have zero kilobytes of javascript if you're if you're going for like an mpa experience with like completely static, like MPAs are often very dynamic. So I don't want to put all multi-page apps in that same category. But what I'm saying is like, if you have interactivity, that's actually, you know, not requiring you to go back to the server every time that and that going back to the server is actually kind of prohibitive, because you know, state preservation and whatnot, for certain types of experiences, um, you're going to have JavaScript, and it doesn't matter. Like, that that is like a, a sunk assumption. I, I'd love to see that JavaScript say be smaller than it is today, um, but you're going to have a certain amount of it, and that's kind of unes, unescapable. So, I I just wanted to kind of put that out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And kind of related to that. Um, is the the rise of the meta frameworks that uh, like ev- like you don't really see what the potential ex- exception of Angular, which is remains old school or maybe just has the meta framework baked in from day one. But if you look at all the other frameworks out there, the common thread going through all of them is that you just don't use them on their own anymore. They're always used in the context of some of some meta framework. It seems. And and sometimes the lines are blurry, like for example, like I guess in your case where you have uh, solid and solid start, and they're just kind of like kind of tied together. But even in the case of React, effectively they've kind of said that next is the future of React. Um, so so it seems that. Uh, the the future of frameworks are meta frameworks, and the primary reason it seems that the future of frameworks are meta frameworks is that you need to have 
some sort of server-side rendering. And that's hard to do without a meta framework because what the meta framework gives you, amongst other things, is a routing solution or routing, you know, depends on your on your uh, pronunciation, uh, deployment, and some sort of uh, state management. That's, you know... Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I could definitely speak to that. Yeah, I, I think the, the meta framework uh, angle, that's been, and it's been happening for the last few years, um, yeah, it's comp- it was driven purely, like mostly off server-side rendering to begin with, right? So you step back for a moment and you go, okay, JavaScript on the page is getting so so big, you know, we're, we're not combating it, code splitting isn't handling it, we, we, you know, sites are getting slower, experiences are, you know, getting noticeably worse on the lower end of devices. Delegating work to the server seems like the obvious choice. And that's really the last, like, that That was like the, the, the mid-model upgrade. You know, like when people put out cars, they put out like the new model and then the, it'll last like a decade, but like halfway through, the decade they'll they'll like release like a facelift so like the car looks new again before they actually replace the model um in a sense with single page apps that's what next.js was right like essentially we we were like we've got our single page app now we're at midlife of like that model let's add um let's give it a facelift and we can do that by pre-rendering or server rendering the initial page experience this has lots of benefits um, you get the, you see the page right away. You don't, you're not greeted with white pages and like some kind of loading placeholder necessarily. Um, you can, you, you know, this gets first paint faster. It helps with SEO. It, it, there's like tons of benefits to this. Funny thing is the one thing it didn't do was actually significantly reduce the amount of JavaScript. Um, because the, for a couple of reasons, uh, generally hydration which we've talked about a few times now, uh, became a thing. And sometimes for a lot of frameworks, hydration is actually at an added cost on top of the rendering. Like, yes, it is less work than, say, rendering a page for the first time in the browser. But now you need the code to be able to handle both scenarios because your your hydrated page also will need to client render stuff in the future. And in a lot of frameworks, um, that extra cost is minimal. But, it, you know, it kind of offsets the fact that like maybe you pushed more of your stuff to the API. Because the truth matters, you could have always. If you didn't want moment on the server, or sorry, in the client, you could make your API endpoints return a bunch of different date formats. I'm, I'm not suggesting you would do that. I'm just saying like there is always the ability to push on the API level back to the server. But um, in, in, in essence... This change it brought a lot of positives, but it was only kind of like part way. And I think we we started realizing that um, it wasn't the you know full, the full story in terms of where we're getting to today. But it meant that there was this added complexity. Now you have multiple builds. Now like the client build and the and the server build might be different. And how do you put them together? And how do you make sure that you know one side server renders like they have different entry points and one side hydrates and Almost every type of optimization that we've kind of looked at over time in the zone has only added more, like more layers and more complexity on on this. So, yeah, you could definitely relate to the fact that it feels like if you want to get like the modern experience for building a JavaScript framework, you would need a meta framework. It's interesting to me because complexity is this thing that's always a moving scale with abstraction. So, I don't 
know like it, it's always a matter of like what's keeping up with what i i i i generally am an unbundler by that i mean i like having primitives i like having small pieces and building stuff up i don't like there's different tools for different purposes but I'm, i've never been like yes i'm going to use a pre-built solution with everything built in you know like um even back in the day like i'd make my own webpack config instead of using create react app that was just like my personal where i kind of sit on this so you know it is a bit alarming to me from that stance that like do we have to use say uh remix or next.js um to to use react today um versus just you know taking the library and building on top of it by the and, way my blight and my blunt response to that would be yes I mean, sure, you could still use Create React App or something or do it yourself. And I know that some large organizations, like, for example, Wix, have their own custom implementation of a meta framework, effectively, instead of using one out of the box. But if you're looking at most web developers out there working on the vast majority of projects... If it's like we used to say that the AJ likes to quote this, that if you uh, aren't using a framework, you'll end up creating, implementing one yourself. Well, it's kind of the same with meta frameworks. If you don't use an out of the box meta framework, you'll end up creating your own meta framework. And the meta framework that you'll end up creating will likely suck. Yeah, and this this is a this is this is a reality. I, I I can I can get behind this to a certain degree, but then I, I start going. Well, that's that's a bit also of like the bundling mentality versus like the unbundling. Because yes, you you will create your own framework in the same way that in a similar way that when I didn't create React app, I still create the you know I needed all the same pieces. I still ended up creating React app. You know what I mean? Like when I use Webpack config, so like. An example of this, Vite, uh, Bundler. Vite's baseline has brought the, the floor on, like, build your own framework miles past what Webpack used to, because now SSR and dev builds are part of the core experience. So if you just go in and go, okay, I'm going to take a React app and then tell, basically bring in the plugin and then give it a server entry point, well, Vite knows how to bundle react for the client and the server and again you have to do a bunch of work probably like some stuff that's in next um if you wanted to make a framework out of it but i'm saying like it's not just like the top end of the abstractions have advanced though like the floor has advanced as well which is really interesting to me because um i i was really stoked on that for a while because i was like are we getting to a point kind of like the same way when web components came in that we could basically commoditize the idea of the JavaScript framework. Like JavaScript, everyone can write a JavaScript framework. And I, I know not everyone wants to write a JavaScript meta framework, I'm, I'm, but it, it suddenly appeared that like the tooling existed, that it would be much easier in the past to, to do that than it would. It's, it's why, like, if you look, SvelteKit, um, new stuff with Marco, it's all Starkbook, we're all actually built on Beat because it lowered the the like it basically what raised the floor, I forget what the right term is, on what it takes to actually, you know, build a, a meta framework. But yes, I, I, I think the thing is you start going, well, that's still too unwieldy, right? That's still too much work. There's a reason SvelteKit took over, well, I don't know, like 
I, don't, I forget how long Stalkit took to come out, but there's a reason. There's a lot of complexity there, even after you've created the features. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be that like secondary movement that's like, hmm, now that I know what the fundamentals are, what are the primitive, like, what are the primitives? What are the building blocks? Right. So the, I, to me, this is the back and forth ebb and flow. I, I know right now the conversation has kind of gone into like, you need a framework. I'm, I'm going to, contest that forever like that's just where i sit in the cycle i always like look at when someone builds something up and goes what are the key pieces to that how can i make that into something that gives me the adaptability to to build stuff with still a lot of the complexity taken from me i i, I think like th th this is going to continue to be a back and forth um game i do think that for the right now the amount of complexity coming in is a lot and we're still discovering patterns because of a lot of the innovation going on. So I think it is a safe bet to, you know, like it's always been to kind of go with something that's prepackaged, that's a framework. But I personally, and, and maybe I'm an outlier here, um, I, I, am, I haven't given up on the non-establishment like of framework thing. I just think we need to figure out what the right primitives are. Yeah, speaking about complexity, I had a Twitter a Twitter conversation with uh, somebody I forget whom, and they kind of tweeted that uh, well, you know, I like React because React is simple, and I couldn't resist and respond with yeah, if it's so simple, let's see you name all the the hooks that exist in React and what their purpose is, uh, you know, because obviously unless you're maybe Dan Abramov, nobody can really name all the hooks and their intended purpose. They're like, what, 15, 20 of them now? Yeah, I mean, how should I put this? It, it, this is the, isn't this the simple versus easy argument as well? Like, I mean, there's, I'm not going to say that we haven't gone to a level where we've abandoned a bit of that simpleness. It's just, I think there's, there, there, there's a very different approach between, say, React's hooks and, say, Svelte language. Like, very obviously different and i think there's a whole range in between that but it is it is interesting to me that like yeah i don't know if we should even talk about simpler easy anymore because like we've kind of gone so far away from it but i do think that there's a kind of philosophical thinking or like sort of design thinking where it's like on one side you know if you have enough basic tools that do one thing well even if there's a lot of them like that makes things, you know, work in a certain way, perhaps it's different than saying like, I have something that is completely all encompassing and um, opinion, more opinionated, but you know, you can configure it to, to, you know, all the ways that I've defined, like, I, I think there are two different sides of things. I, I don't know if I made that very, without the visual, it's hard to actually do that. But it's like the classic difference between react, the library and angular, the framework, um, like, I think all of these kind of splits, you know, and philosophy still exist today. They've just kind of evolved in what form they've taken. And I think um, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Because like, if we're talking about library versus framework and the React side of things, they still view the primitives that they're making for React as kind of like a library type thing. They're like, look, you can build frameworks with React. That's what we ship. We're shipping these reusable building blocks. I do think, though, that as you get uh, higher uh, up in the abstraction, uh, that 
there is an interesting tension there because at, at which point do all the React frameworks end up looking basically identical because React has taken that onto itself, so to speak, right? There's, and we're getting kind of a little meta out there, but one th the funniest thing I've noticed is that when you standardize on something kind of like web components or whatever, or like Vite did, suddenly you get an explosion uh, of, of different solutions, um, which, you know, like, it's almost like, whereas if you cons consolidate on the other hand, um, you end up actually narrowing. It's almost like the thing has the opposite effect that you'd expect it to have in these cases where if like react basically goes look here are all the tools you can make to make a framework all the frameworks will probably end up looking more similar to each other well this is look. where i say that react react is a framework react is a framework there's no doubt about it and this is the litmus test if something is a library you include the library to use it. When something is a framework, you insert your code inside of a wrapper. So if nothing else, JSX is a framework. JSX is not a library. JSX is a framework. And then if you are going into JSX, there is an entire set of design patterns that you are using and also an entire set, basically everything else that you are excluding. So you, you can't use React. You must put your code inside of a React boilerplate. It's not something that you can say, oh, well, I'm going to use this, these few functions from React over here, and I'm going to use these few functions from something else over here and both of these things are going to be able to be used without conflict. There's not a way to, or I, there's not a way to is a strong way to put it. There is not a idiomatic way to use React and something else and have the necessary information of the different hierarchies be... Um, I hesitate to use the word shared, but let's say shared. Like that's that's not realistic in 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 a mathematical purest sense. Yes, it is possible to do, although I don't I don't know that for myself. That's just the the, the dogma. But I don't. It's certainly not practical to do. But I would take it a step further, even beyond what you're saying, because from my perspective, JSX transcends framework into being uh, a programming language. A and that's kind of like the reason. Yes. Yeah. So, and obviously when you're programming in a certain programming language, you buy into that programming language. You don't, you know, use a programming language as, as a, like a utility that in just like, certain lines of your code. It doesn't really work that way in most cases. And in particular, JSX is, in, in, is interesting as a programming language because if we look at React and what React does with JSX and then we look at what Solid does with JSX, it's a totally different thing, even though it's the same, essentially the same programming language because it kind of gets compiled into a different thing. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> JSX is actually really cool. I mean, but this, 
because like we it it, it it's uh and this is right from their spec it's like a syntax um and, and there's a bit of semantics around the way that it's organized but it's a syntax extension for javascript and it's not supposed to have runtime semantics but obviously react uses it one way that is the common way but like um there are um other ways that you can use it. it. It literally just is like a parsable syntax. So almost all tools understand it, but you can kind of use it however you want, which is not something that's oft, often understood. And actually, this might be a good point to talk about compilation for a minute in general, because I think what we've hit here constantly with JavaScript frameworks and their ambition is this desire to... We, we basically hit the limits of what like the platform or the language offers, right? This is, I mean, this is where it started. A lot of the frameworks in terms of like their abstractions were like, okay, look, um, DOM elements are not sufficient to represent every sort of component out there. Like let's build other things, you know, there's things like suspense, orchestration, there's a whole level of stuff. And I, I think what's interesting right now is we're actually hitting walls on the, the language of JavaScript itself. When you're, authoring for frameworks and authoring uh, applications, quite often this, the management of state is, you know, like of mind, right? The, I, I once joked that the history of web development is just like, look who's left holding the bag of state. Like essentially the fact that like at the beginning, you know, there's <laughs> like stateful servers and then it's like, oh no, push that over there. And then like, you know, this kind of back and forthness because, you know, it's easy to scale stuff up when you don't have to worry about state. There's like, yeah, it's funny, you know, because like computer science 101 is like avoid global objects. And then you realize you have to keep state somewhere and it all ends up being a global object somewhere. So it's just kind of becomes a question of how do I kind of obscure the fact that it's a global object as much as I possibly can, or at least shift that ownership of that global over to somebody else so that it doesn't mean like handing over that hot potato. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's 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 wild. But the thing is, like, eventually where we landed to is, like, often getting state closer to where user interaction is, or at least a direct path, is good for us because it makes it more intuitive on the UI. That's, like, the... I think that's a lot of cases why we were where we are in terms of single-page apps and a kind of client-centric model. But what's interesting is JavaScript itself is a very flexible, functional, object-oriented hybrid whatever language that it is you know it's got elements of a whole bunch of other stuff you can do a lot of different things so one thing that it isn't particularly is like a data flow language like like and it's interesting because almost every javascript framework has been trying to push that into the language in some way like spelt's compiler is a really obvious case of it but if you look at react hooks like it's so funny because react is so popular that it's kind of morphed the like mentality a lot of people just see and go oh I, that's normal but like if you look at components and hooks like this is kind of a morphing too like in the sense that like you have these components that rerun but the hooks sometimes persist and like you, you they've kind of created a bit of a language there with very specific rules you know like the hook rules and stale closures and that, that whole thing and reactivity itself which is the you know kind of the an alternative thing fine-grained reactivity like we have in solid and view um and quick and Prex added signals recently as well. Um, this is also um, a kind of language morph. Like, there's a reason you have to call it as a function. Like, in a sense, you're like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if you just had reactive variables? Well, that's not JavaScript, right? And I think 
we're like trying so hard to find ways to model stuff in a sensible way using basically data flow language, reactivity or hooks and memoization, like whatever pattern you're choosing here. It's funny, there's a lot of analogs between them, the same way that electrical and say mechanical systems are similar, but like similar, like you have similar equations on both sides describing different related things. I don't know, this probably make more sense to engineers out there, but like the difference on, there's surprising similarities on language when you consider signal versus state, you know, memo versus computed, Effect versus effect. Everyone likes to call effects effects. But like these things are actually very different in React than they are in Svelte or Solid. All different versions of this idea of state, derived state, and side effect. And funny enough, we're all trying to like push this in our own way into our JavaScript language, whether directly as a compiler like Svelte or by coming up with like dedicated syntaxes in the case of reactivity and hooks. And like this is only one example, but it seems like a lot of the friction or, uh, is is caused around around this point. Like it's it's actually really difficult um, because like there's there's awkwardnesses like you know like the hook rules in React or like um, losing reactivity between files in reactive libraries like in Vue or Solid. Don't destructure the props, you know, like or Quick actually as well. Uh, like 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 there's a whole like bunch of extra rules we have because the language itself doesn't handle it and jsx is almost an extension of that in a sense it's like what if javascript had macros like the that's the role of jsx it's not actually yeah <laughs> yeah it keeps on coming back but the funniest thing yeah about aj these... remember when you sent me the link to that video i forgot how long ago it was that one of the original creators of react was like basically saying you know you went like halfway with react now you need to embrace reason to go all the way oh yeah jordan jordan walk the creator of react also created reason um the the talk was called react to the future and, oh yeah, yeah. That's he, it. In that in that talk, he basically says the problem with React is JavaScript, and Reason solves that problem. That's basically the message. Yeah, and and I I think that's it, it's funny because React's working on the React Forget compiler, and like we're we're kind of in this interesting place um, because of that. But like Reason is one way of solving that problem, right? Very functional kind of approach, you know, but, there, you know, like a reactive control flow language would be another way. Um, you know, Svelte kind of hints at that possibility. Um, one of the challenges, obviously, is trying to use that in a way that, like, building compilers for this stuff is complicated, because when you have a language, you have, like, guarantees and interface across files, you know, like the way when you put something in TypeScript in one file, and then the other file you import, and you're like, oh, I know the type of this. Like, there's, there's a whole bunch of tooling and like cross-modular considerations, right? Which is something that a lot of JavaScript frameworks aren't going to go like go all in on. Like as I said, I mentioned Svelte. It's like the reactivity is contained within their Svelte files because that's a lot easier than trying to analyze every single file in your project and know what's reactive or not. That's actually what a lot of the research in Marco actually was in Marco Six, which uh, is still in progress. But it was as essentially using the whole still is and always will be. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm pretty hopeful. Like last year, we managed to get to a point where we we're making like the simple demos, like the Hacker News and the to do. I, I love that you I, still I, say we. Yeah, I know. I, I, I haven't been as involved in the project uh, the last, uh, you know, six to eight months. Admittedly, I've been very busy with my work on Solid, but I'm very big supporter of the work they're doing there because of, it's, it's very innovative on several fronts. 
Yeah, whatever innovation you're doing in your own framework, there's a good chance that Marco has already done it. Yes, and that's the, that's that's the funny thing about it. I mean, it's it it is hard because you you know if you keep on trying to shoot so far, like you you will it ever come out kind of scenario. But it's like re, there's there's common threads that we're seeing in in approaches to you know things moving forward. I was talking about the language and the compilation, right? Um, reactivity is another one. Like, don't get me wrong, I don't expect React to pick up fine-grained reactivity in like solid sense of it. But there is a convergence because of the, the language consideration. Like if you, Dan Abramoff wrote a long blog about like how to think about use effect properly. And he basically described it the way that I describe effects in, in a reactive system solid. And I was like, I, you know, I had to think for a minute. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Because look, if, you, if you're making a memoizing compiler and you're hiding the dependency arrays, it gets a lot harder. Like, just picture some React code. Now, picture the dependency arrays disappear, and then picture that some of the code runs sometimes, and some of the code doesn't run sometimes, uh, based on if you know values change. What's the right mental model? You're like, this is a like old class components in React had a render function. You're like, oh, something changed. Call the render function. Then hooks came out, and you're like, okay, something changes. I will call the render function again, but then I'll check against you know like a list of like memoized list of of uh, the dependency array and go okay I'm going to decide based on this which of these hooks I rerun. But if you erase the dependency array, erase the syntax around the hooks, let's say in auto memoize where stuff just sometimes updates and sometimes doesn't update, it's a much harder mental model to explain as something that runs top down. It's a lot easier to explain it as oh when the dependency changes this expression runs. It's actually more declarative that way, and I think that's. I think that's an interesting convergence, regardless of what the underlying mechanism of like using a virtual DOM or you know rerunning the components is. Is that we we start talking about these things now in the terms of like state and derived state and side effects, like, and it's almost like in a language level consideration. So like these kind of pieces, like reactivity in that sense, and are, are kind of fundamental to almost all the 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 progress forward in the frameworks because like you can take that problem and take that solution and apply it to other things this this is interesting to us because it gives us better insight into developer intent what you're trying to write with your code when you actually explain things in these terms um if something is not stateful well guess what you don't need that javascript in the browser like you, you we can tell from these kind of pieces how to optimize code better it informs compilers that's kind um, of like what tools. That's kind of like what Quick is trying to do, in a sense, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, Quick's approach uh, is is and Marco Six are very similar in that sense. Um, the challenge is the, how smart we want to be with it, and how much is automated or not. Right. Um, in a sense, what Quick does is you denote things with dollar signs. You're like, hey, these are points of interest. These are things that could um, end up as a boundary between your client and server. And then we'll automate, like, based on how you use it, again, what's stateful or not, when you interact with it, which of that JavaScript to include or to send to the browser, and you kind of set up those boundaries. Um, and it's a pretty reasonable approach because, again, if you're focusing on each file independently, um, that's that it's good to be able to denote that right marco's approach was a little bit more ambitious where it it 
doesn't mark every point, but then you have to trace through every file. Like the limitations on the language make us come up with very interesting approaches to syntax. And um, I, I, I mean, I'd love to say that we we haven't really solved this problem until we can get rid of the dollar signs, but I don't know how long we can get there. And, and when I say dollar signs, I don't just mean quick dollar signs. I mean, svelte dollar signs. I mean, solid starts dollar signs. We, we Whenever you come across a dollar sign in a JavaScript framework that's not jQuery, usually it's like, hey, we're doing something a little bit, you know, out of expectation here. You know, I mean, Rx has dollar signs too, which it means reactivity. But like the modern, the modern way has been using dollar signs to mark compiler. Like this is not the JavaScript you're familiar with. And yeah, I mean, it's always like, like a little bit of a leap, you know, and I, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic that we can, you know, get past that, but it might take a while because until we have the perfect compiler, like I, the funny thing is, it sounds like I'm just saying really pro compiler. There's trade-offs here because we lose transparency. Like we hit our escape hatches and suddenly do we understand what the system underneath is? I think actually this is one of the challenges with use effect. Use effect is not a bad hook. It's just that, it, it is the escape hatch that shows you what React's doing under the hood, and that might surprise you. And I think like that's the the challenge here, because it isn't just about building the best abstractions. It's also about um, you know accounting for things like escape hatches, because ultimately, if you can escape, we will escape. It's just one of those things. You know, every real project hits a performance thing. It doesn't matter if you're using the fastest framework. You're going to hit some place you need to optimize, or you need to pull in some other library. You need to do something, and and so the escape hatches are as important as the abstractions. And this is something actually I think the React team and design has always really taken into consideration. I've always appreciated. But I just I think it's important to understand that the, these are all parts of designing the language, designing the framework. But yeah, I. I was really trying to get into this topic because I wanted to point out that there's this kind of commonality here uh, around the language and the compilation. Like, even if I'm not necessarily, like, I actually keep trying to keep compilation to a minimum on solid side because I'm, I'm I'm skeptical of it a little bit because I worry about how far we get. But it's it's definitely one of the best tools that we have to, you know, address this gap. You know, we want to have our DX and our UX. We want to, you know, have our cake and eat it too, so to speak. And like, it's no coincidence that everybody's kind of coming into these same areas, looking at the language of, re like, reactivity, looking at hydration, looking at server-side rendering. It all ties into the same thread of what these future, um, you know, JavaScript frameworks look like. So ultimately, we'll all be coding in Excel? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, it's, it's an interesting tension like what 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 does that language look like um right i mean svelte has one very specific, you know view of that world um i, I have to say that know? my issue with svelte is is kind of like i like to say that if we were able to send rich harris back in time to those 10 days of glory with to sit alongside brendan ike and redesign everything along you know the way that svelte currently works that might have been great but the fact that you know we can't do that ends up with with svelte kind of subverting the expectations of of what the code is 
and and you know we had the conversation on this with, with the people the the people from uh, this dot labs and they say well it's kind of okay because it's in a svelte file but that's a really thin distinction from my perspective yeah man it, it's tricky because like in what I, I like your send him back to Brendan Ike uh, thing because it's, it's it is that is beautiful. See, Svelte has a very good abstraction in that they do a really good job of restraining such a things in that it isn't as leaky as it might be. Like they're they're like, look, that thing we can't handle. I'm not going to worry about it. Like I'm just going to make sure that these things are clean. It's very clean. It's very like from a design standpoint. But that the challenge is it it isn't JavaScript. It like like it, it it is JavaScript that gets compiled out of it, but what you author is not JavaScript. But to be fair, that's been true since Babel came out like seven years ago. Like we 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 author what we write and what we get is often quite different. But yeah, it's the try, semantic. Try to single step in a file that has a, a sync await in it uh, <laughs> that's been compiled uh, to ES5 or something. You'll see your cursor jumping all over the place and usually not to the lines you expect. Right. But the challenge here is the semantic piece, right? You're like, look, JavaScript does not work like that. Like the funny thing is everyone sees the dollar signs in Svelte because that's a, the, the you know obvious like, hey, let's use something that no one else is really using and make it a reactive expression. But let is actually the most special primitive and svelte and let is not let is a javascript concept like in this even though it's not the same as fine-grained react reactivity let becomes a signal right and that is kind of the challenge here because you you have actually even forgetting the dollar signs you have actually morphed what a let statement in javascript means and i i think the thing is i respect a lot with what rich did here because no one is it, no one wants another language you, you come and go like look i've designed the perfect language it's a variant of lisp and you like you show it to people and this isn't a stab at jordan walk i mean literally this has come up multiple times you know I, where people like want to solve it by you know coming up with a new language and people will be like they'll find something and they're just like Ugh. like there's this there's this like revulsion to like when people like take a language or like change it marco has suffered with this too with their html s language like like what that enables is incredible in terms of like read uh refactoring story but like because you can just like move tags around and like stay well, and if, and if all that. that's what you want you should be using elm right or, or like elm like there's there's all these kind of like sp like languages and our attempts at it and a lot of people are just like Ugh. and what rich did was he managed to find a balance where people looked at it and was like oh javascript but it's a kind of deceiving balance because it, it isn't JavaScript. But I've, we found that people are much more accepting. I mean, I don't know what this is, but more accepting of like changing the current syntax and semantics and kind of like pretend like it's not actually something more complicated um, than going like, here's a specific tool designed specifically to handle this. Like what if, you know, I don't know, like what what if, reference needed to be a concept of html or something like where you made a specific syntax for it or like instead of doing that just being like let's i mean I, this is even true in templating languages too like even like with a lot of the like stuff like uh like like view is an example of this to a certain degree where you take something that's an attribute essentially attributes just pass values but now you've kind of made a directive out of it and you've 
and you've decided that like it's okay to change the semantics as long as we don't change the syntax. Like, I, I think that it's interesting that how much that familiarity plays into like kind of gut judgments when looking at this. This is why um, it's it's very it's very challenging um, on the language side because if every time you add like a new syntax or like people are immediately going to be like. I, I, I'm suspect. I, I don't know if I need that. And so, is that why you made Solid to look so much like uh, React, and <laughs> then con- then surprise everybody in the way that it works? Like, where are my use effects? Here's the funniest thing about that. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this on the previous stream, but like, that might be why I'm here today. Like, why Solid is popular. That might be like the biggest factor of what of how solid got attention and how people paid attention to it but it wasn't that piece wasn't intentional from my perspective it was just like you got you got to understand like react like if you you can see i think anyone who kind of follow solid's evolution can see how we got there but it's so funny like in a hindsight type thing because if, if if you look like some pulls out knockout js or whatever and look at what a component looks like in knockout they didn't have components really they're called view models initially they they added components later but if you look at a view model knockout 2010 it was a function that had hooks in it essentially like it looked like that you were just like you you're you'd be like function counter and then you'd be like const count equals observable value like and and it looked a lot like that and it's funny to me because obviously Templating evolved. So in Solid's case, we, we uh, JSX ended up being like a really good choice because it's supported by all the tooling. I was just like, oh, okay, sweet. I don't, I don't have to deal with all this. I actually over time appreciated how portable it was, like how you can move it or pass it around and stuff. But generally speaking, it was just like, here's a templating language supported by all the tooling, builds with JavaScript. I can use everything that exists. And I have these function components with, with uh, you know, reactive primitives in them or, you know. And then Re- React released hooks after that so then it was like oh but yes once react released hooks it was funny because people like okay are you trying to copy react there and i was like well a little bit but it wasn't for the reason you think it was just like i really like i i I was coming from a place of reactive systems were good they were performant i didn't believe the hypo and the vdom but i i understood why you know if you you know watch that old like talking things from jing chen like about flux and like stuff like it could get chaotic so i'd kind of impress these patterns on unidirectional flow like it's really important that data flows downward and you don't have weird butterfly effects showing up over your code so read write segregation you know is a very valuable thing and i i I had a bunch of apis around it where i was doing funny things like hanging sets off my my data like so i'd have like a signal and you just read it and then you go dot set on it and i had I did that with my stores too, or like proxies. Essentially, you get like a, a proxy that was read only, and then you call dot set on it. I never thought of using tuples or tuples, depending on how you call it. So when I saw React hooks, I was just like, bang, that's what I was missing. So it, it wasn't so much an intention of of copying React. It was just like I was already like 95% of the way there before hooks came out. And then I was like, oh, that that's the missing piece. Why didn't I think of this? <laughs>